Man, very w- weird um, being here at this moment, being able to share with you kind of my last, last time as a, as a pastor here at the church. And um, it almost, uh, uh, Satan almost got the better of me yesterday. Um, and you know, when you're going out to do something, this is just a, a foreshadowing of the trials to come, I'm sure. Um, but uh, my wife and I, we're really just irritated at one another for whatever reason. I mean, I really can't really, I don't know why. Have you guys ever been in that spot before? Our wives are the worst that way, right, guys? So anyway, so we're, we're, we're bickering, we're arguing about nothing. And then my kids were piling on. And so we went to shop and I tried to buy a new shirt for this morning and didn't find one. So um, anyway, that's besides the point. So, um, so we, we went to Old Navy and they have these bouncy balls. How many of the moms know the bouncy balls I'm talking about? They're like 50 cents and, and they're the worst things. They're the worst 50 cents you could ever spend because then what happens is they end up throwing them and bouncing them and they're hitting people and old ladies are almost falling and breaking their hips. It's bad news. And so my wife and I are at each other's throats, but quietly because we're trying to keep it cool. We're in a store. And then my kids are piling on. So then we were going and, and uh, Lindley keeps on, keeps on throwing the ball and like bouncing it, trying to catch it. And she's not necessarily the most coordinated uh, seven-year-old there is. And so she's, she's not catching it and it, and it falls. And, and Sarah, I got permission to share this, by the way. Um, so it's okay. She's not in here anyway. So um, Sarah looks at Lindley and, you know, it's, she did like the dad, you like yell through your teeth, but your teeth are closed, you know? She said, Lindley, <laughs> this literally came out of her mouth. She said, Lindley, if this ball goes on the ground one more time, I'm going to throw it away. I'm going to throw it in the trash right in front of you. And I hope you cry. <laughs> So moms, how many of you guys have been in that spot before? For those of you who didn't raise your hand, you're just not admitting to it. Um, so anyways, but we, we made it. I'm here um, and, uh, and God is good. And so um, I just wanted to share that last night, it was, it was really emotional. Pastor Ted started crying and he made me cry and my wife cry. And literally as soon as, um, as, soon as he turned the pulpit over me, my wife lit, sprinted off the stage and left our three kids up here. Um, and so I had to open up with that story last night to, to kind of get me in a better preaching mood. And so I figured I'd start with it again this morning. So anyways, Exodus chapter 33, um, God's kind of put this passage on my heart for about a year now in, in the process of praying through and thinking through planting uh, this church that God's called us to, to plant. And, um, and really this passage is about God's faithfulness and his presence. And so I, I couldn't think of more appropriate song that we just sang than, uh, than, than the song that we just sung. And so uh, this morning, we're gonna be in Exodus 33, but in order to kind of set the scene um, for chapter 33, um, there's a lot that has happened. There's a lot that's gone on in the book of Exodus. And so I actually have a video that I'd like to show you. It's the Bible Project. They do just a beautiful job of kind of setting the scene for Exodus chapter 33. So check it out. The first half of the book of Exodus tells the story of ancient Israel being rescued from slavery. And when people say the Exodus story, those are the chapters they're referring to. But the book has a second half where Moses gives the Ten Commandments to Israel along with these instructions about building a sacred tent. And what links these two halves together is this crucial story. The people of Israel, they're out in the middle of nowhere. They find themselves at the foot of this mountain called Sinai. And here, God's presence comes dramatically down in the form of a violent storm cloud. Now let's stop a second and talk about this concept of God's presence because it's really important for the rest of the book. At the beginning of the Bible, in the Garden 
Garden of Eden, humanity was in God's presence. They had this close relationship with him and it was good. But humanity rebels and the relationship is fractured and access to God's presence is lost. But God promised Abraham that he would restore his blessing to all of the nations. And that includes this restoration of relationship and access to God's presence. So here at Sinai, God's presence is now right here in front of them. And it's actually quite frightening. And he's here to invite Israel into this unique and close relationship with him. And the word used to describe this relationship is covenant. It's like a legal agreement between God and Israel. And it's unique because up till now, God hasn't asked Israel to do anything in return, just to trust him. But here on this mountain, God is going to ask Israel to do something. A lot of things, actually. He gives them a whole set of laws. that It includes the Ten Commandments. And if they obey these commandments, they will become the people who will represent God to the nations of the world. Like a priest would. Yeah, in fact, that's what God calls them to become, a kingdom of priests. And this is all connected back to the promise to Abraham that his family would become a blessing to the nations. Okay, but obeying these laws is going to be difficult because... There's a lot of them, and they set a really high standard. Though if you think about it, I mean, of anybody in the world who should be able to do it, I mean, it's these people who experienced firsthand God's grace and his power when he rescued them from slavery. And, and they agree to obey the terms, but then they refuse to go into God's presence because it's, well, it's still a bit frightening. And since the people won't go up, Moses goes up to the mountain by himself to meet with God. But God still wants to be with all of his people. And so he says, okay, if the people won't come up here to me, I'll come down off this mountain to be with you all. And that's why he orders Moses to build this elaborate tent as a place where God's presence can be among his people. And that's why the next thing we get is seven chapters of extremely detailed architectural blueprints for this tent. It's really, really really long. But every detail is important and has some kind of symbolic value. For example, there's all this Garden of Eden imagery inside the tent. And it's to remind you that when you're in the tent, you are in God's presence. Then we get another six chapters describing how they built the tent, which is really just repeating the same blueprints word for word. Now let's back up because before the tent is finished, there's this super important story. Moses is coming off the mountain with the Ten Commandments and the blueprints in his hands, and he finds Israel breaking the first two commands of the covenant. Don't have any other gods before me and don't worship idol statues. Right, and so here we are, immediately after agreeing to the covenant, they're throwing this ritual party, they're worshiping an idol. And so God says to Moses, you know what, this is, this is not gonna work. I should just wipe these people out and start over with you. But Moses reminds God of his promise to Abraham and pleads with God to spare them, which is a really weird conversation. Why would God need to be reminded of something. Yeah, it does seem odd. But this dialogue is inviting us into God's experience of grief and pain due to Israel's actions. And he really could walk away. But instead, this God chooses faithfulness to his own promises, even though he knows it's going to cost him. So we come to the end of the book. The tabernacle's built, God's presence comes down off the mountain to fill it. And in the final scene, Moses goes to enter the tabernacle to be in God's presence. But he can't. He's actually not able to go inside, and that's how the book ends. Why can't he go in? That was the whole point. So when Israel worshipped the golden calf, it was like a slap in the face to God's faithfulness. And so Moses can't just waltz into the tent like everything's just fine. There's a deeper problem still in this relationship. Will they ever be able to fix the relationship and go into God's presence? Well, that's what the next book, Leviticus, is all about.
So that, uh, that video does just a good job of kind of setting up there where we're going to be at this morning. And so Exodus chapter 33 picks up as Moses um, comes down off the mountain to the golden calf incident in chapter 32. And so then he goes back up to Mount Sinai to meet with God and really to make intercession and pray for and pray in behalf of or on behalf of the, uh, the, the rest of the, the nation of Israel, really asking for God's uh, forgiveness and uh, for the blessing. And so we pick up here, chapter 33, starting in verse one. We'll read the first two and a half verses um, this morning and then we'll, I will stop there. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to a land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey." And so God here, after this terrible, terrible breaking of the covenant um, between God and his people, because you remember actually back to chapter 19 of the book of Exodus, um, this is the first time that Moses enters um, or, or goes to the Mount Sinai. He meets with God. This is where God gives him the 10 commandments and the instructions for building the tabernacle like we saw in the video. And he, and he actually comes, before he, he comes down with that, he meets with the Israelite elders. And he says, look, do you want to enter into this covenant where God will be our, our king, our, our master? And they said, yeah, we're, we're totally in. We're totally in. So um, we see just a few sh- uh, short chapters later, Moses is going up, getting um, getting the rest of the instructions for the tabernacle. And all of a sudden he comes down to this drunken party of them worshiping uh, this golden calf that Aaron had made. And so uh, God's telling him, Moses now here in chapter 33, look, that's done with. I want you now to go to the promised land, uh, the land which I swore to give your, your forefathers. And you notice what God does here. It's an amazing thing. He doesn't just wipe the people off the face of the earth, which is probably what I would have done in God's shoes. And so uh, God doesn't do that. What he does is he tells Moses to go to the land that he had promised him. Um, and, and God leads on the premise of his past promises, which is just an amazing thing. He says, look, in verse one, it says, I will give this land to you. I will give it. And he says, I will send my angel with you and I will drive out all of your enemies. And lastly, in verse three, the first half of verse three, he says, look, I want you to go to this amazing sweet land that's flowing with milk and honey, but there's just one problem. Look at the second half of verse three. And this is a huge problem. He says this, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff necked people. That's a huge problem for the children of Israel. They had enjoyed God's presence um, by a cloud, by, by day and fire by night leading them. That was the presence of God and his faithfulness showing up in a very tangible and real way. And God says, look, I'm gonna call you to go. You still need to go to land that I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna drive out all your enemies. I'm gonna do, I'm gonna even send my angel ahead of you and with you, but my presence is not going to go with you. And we're gonna look at the rest of the chapter this morning and Moses um, was not gonna have that. He realized that he needed God's presence and he was gonna do anything and everything it took to plead God for um, the, the powerful presence of God himself. And so uh, if you look here in verse four, 
now through verse six, we see the response of Israel to the terrible news that God wouldn't go with him. Read with me, verse four, it says this. It says, and then when the people heard this bad news, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the children of Israel, you are a stiff necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. And so we see the children of Israel kind of realize what had just happened. I mean, if I'm in Israel's shoes and I'm going through the wilderness um, and I see this, this fire by night to light up the sky and I see this huge pillar of cloud by day to kind of protect them from the elements guiding me and directing me and that is no longer going to be with me, I would be a little freaked out. How many of you guys get freaked out when you know that your GPS absolutely just turns off and you're like, I don't know where I'm coming, right? No guy better raise your hand right now. <laughs> just kidding. Um, but yeah, I, I would imagine, or I imagine being in the Israelite shoes and, and just knowing how stressful and how terrible that was going to be to know that God, his presence wasn't going to go with me to this land that they had never seen before. They've heard the promises that it's going to be good, but they haven't actually been there. And so to, to think to, to go through there or to go through the way of the wilderness into the promised land without God's presence is a very scary thing. But Israel has the proper response here. It says they mourned and they took off their ornaments. And the idea of taking off their ornaments is just a sign of humility, realizing, man, that we've messed up, that we we need to repent of our sin and we need to to turn our hearts back to to God. And just a side note here, the ornaments were like their jewelry and their necklaces and things like that. Um, Chapter 32, Aaron, they're like, hey, we need a God. Moses is gone 40 days, like 40 days, not like a long time. He's only gone for 40 days. They're like, oh, we need, a, we need a new leader. Why don't you make a God for us, Aaron? So Aaron's like, okay, give me your ornaments. Give me your necklaces and your earrings and so forth. And so he throws them in the fire and then he comes out and then he builds this golden calf. So I think it's funny that now they are taking off their ornaments and a sign of reverence to God instead of trying to be their own gods and make their own gods. And so um, this shows just their heart beginning to turn back to the Lord a little bit. Um, and you look at um, verse seven, uh, Moses basically sets the tone for the rest of the chap- or the rest of the book of Exodus and how they were going to pursue Jesus or pursue God. So look at verse seven with me. It says, and Moses took his tent and he pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out, of the ta- out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside of the camp. So if you remember um, earlier, we saw it in the video um, that God was giving Moses instructions for this place of meeting where God's presence could dwell. And it was the tabernacle. Well, that had not been made yet. Remember, he came down early off the mountain um, because of the, the stupid golden calf incident. And so here he is, he realizes that, Moses realizes that God's presence isn't gonna go with him. And so he's like, I need to meet with God. So notice what he does here in verse seven. He says, he took his tent, that's his house. Moses made his house a place of meeting with God. And there was no guarantee that God was going to show up because God didn't tell Moses, hey, look, I want you to make your personal house a place of meeting. He said, I want you to make this this mobile temple, if you will. I want you to make that my place of meeting. 
And when Moses heard the bad news that God's presence wouldn't go with him, he said, you know, I can imagine being in Moses' shoes. I'm probably trying to think, how can I get God to meet with me? Uh, I need the presence of God in my life. I'm, I'm sunk without it. I am up the creek without a paddle. If I do not have God's presence, there's no way I can lead these people to the promised land, God, unless your presence goes with me. And so he decides to make his personal house of dwelling uh, and opening that up and inviting God to meet with him there. And he sets the tone, he sets the example for the rest of Israel. And it's just a beautiful picture of what you and I can do as leaders in our home, in our community, in our church, especially um, for us dads, just the powerful um, example that we can set for our family by choosing to take a stand and not take no for an answer as far as meeting with God. So I just love Moses here and his boldness because even in the midst of Israel's brokenness and the greatest sin that had been committed up until this point was breaking that covenant with God. Moses said, I'm desperate to meet with you, God. I have to meet with you. Even if I have to make my own personal house a place where you can come and dwell and meet with me. And so look at verse eight with me. We see God's response to Moses' boldness to make his house a place of meeting. He says, and so it was whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, that all the people, so this is the rest of Israel, they would rise, they rose. And each man stood at the tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle and the Lord talked with Moses. And all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshiped each man in his tent door. The example that Moses sets here is really incredible. Um, as, a, as, as a dad and as a husband, I have the huge privilege to lead my family. Um, I don't always do it with grace, I don't always do it the right way. Um, you can, ask, you can ask my wife, um, often, more times than not, I, I blow it, um, but I'm still called to lead. And I think Moses set this huge example for the rest of the children of Israel. He decided he was gonna meet with God. There was no way he wasn't gonna have the presence of God in his life. So he made his house a tabernacle of meeting. And it said, when he went up and went into the house to worship, what did the rest of Israel do? They followed suit. So let me talk to you dads for a minute. Let me ask you this question. What examples are you setting for your children? Now, wives, moms, you can, you can answer these same questions, but I'm a guy, I'm a dad, so I'm gonna speak specifically to the dads here uh, this morning. But I grew up without a dad, and so I take this role of being a dad very serious, and I love it, it's the greatest gift ever. It's the, it's the best. I was talking to Dave just yesterday, or was it this morning or yesterday? Yeah, this morning about it. And I was like, man, being a dad's just the coolest. And he's like, well, wait till, you're, wait till your kids are teenagers. Um, no, so he was teasing me, but, but man, I, I can't understand, I, I can't imagine why you wouldn't want to be a dad. And the huge, huge, huge blessing it is to be able to raise your family, to lead your family, to know, to love, and to serve Jesus. And so Moses by the example that he set, the rest of Israel followed suit in worship of God. So dads, let me ask you this. What examples are you setting for your children? Let me ask you, is bringing them to church on Wednesday or on Sunday and letting Awanas, junior high or high school pour into them, those are good things. 
But if you, is that your idea of discipling your kids? Is dropping them off on Sunday or Wednesday night, is that the extent of your discipleship? Are you worshiping um, in front of them? Are you um, serving Jesus in front of them? Not for a show, but as an example to your kids to want to follow suit. You can just look at uh, your kids and they, they probably have your personality or your wife's personality in one way or another. I know my kids are a good mix of both of us, but there's things that I'll say that I see my kids saying and I'm like, you can't say that. Like, stop saying that. Don't be like me, right? And there's other times where I want them to be like me. Well, here's the thing you guys need to know is that your kids are watching you. Your downlines, your disciples are watching you and they ought to watch you and they ought to be following your example. Now, what I'm not saying is if you have a wayward son or daughter, that that is 100% your fault. I'm not saying that. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the Bible says. So I don't mean this to be in a condemning way. I mean this to be an encouraging way and a challenging way for you to take a look at your, um, at your disciples and say, the way that they're turning out, are you satisfied? Are you happy with how you've raised your kids? Because at the end of the day, you're never gonna look back and be like, man, I really wish I would have spent less time pouring into my kids. I really wish I would have spent less time spending a one-on-one time with them but you will look back and say, man, I really wish I would have spent more time pouring into my kids and setting a proper example. So let me challenge you men specifically this morning to love Jesus so hard that your kids want to love Jesus just as hard. Amen? All right. So um, we see Moses seeks Jesus or seeks God and seeks the presence of God um, and God shows up. Look at verse 11 with me. It says, and the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend and he would return to the camp. But the servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man did not depart from the tabernacle. I believe that um, Moses um, had such a genuine desire to see God move among him and among his people that he was so bold in approaching the Lord. And I just love God's faithfulness to, Mo- to Moses because Moses did not deserve the powerful presence of God in his life. Moses did not deserve that. Children of Israel especially did not deserve that. But we see God never gives up on his people and he grants him, Moses and the rest of the children of Israel, his closeness and his intimate presence, which is just a huge game changer. And I love Moses' boldness. The book of Hebrews um, Chapter 11, verse six, I believe it's up on the screen. It says, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must first believe that he is and that he, God, is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I think Moses must have had faith that God would show up at that tabernacle. I think Moses must have had a genuine desire to see God uh, so strong, so move so strongly in his life that God showed up. And I think in our lives as Christians, we, we live uh, defeated lives in Christ too often where we are satisfied without the presence of God in our lives. Let me ask you a few questions. Do we actually believe that God is here in this room this morning? Do we actually believe that God is working here this morning? Do we believe, like that song said, that God is present everywhere? Do we believe that God is near? 
Do you believe that maybe your heart is broken? Maybe you're going through a trial. Do you believe that God is, is near to the brokenhearted as his word says? Do you believe that the same spirit that rose Jesus from the grave, listen, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the grave dwells in each and every single one of us and has authority, has given us the power and authority to walk in his grace. I think if we believe that, that ought to change every single aspect of our lives. I think we would live in victory more often than defeat. Do you believe that Jesus will show up and absolutely wreck and blow your mind if you just invite him in to your life? And I love Moses here because he wasn't satisfied with just the blessing of knowing that the promised land was his. He wasn't gonna go there unless the strong presence of, Jesus, of God was gonna go with him. But here's the trick. You want the presence of God in your life? You can't just invite him into certain aspects of your life. He must become your life. Jesus must infiltrate every aspect of your life. In fact, in John chapter six, starting in verse 53, it says, then Jesus said to them, this is the religious leaders of the day, the people that were following him. He says, look, most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man, super weird, I'll explain, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Jesus was, was looking to his death, burial, and resurrection and says, unless my death, burial, and resurrection completely entangles your life and you are marked by that and you have ingested me in and taken in all of me, then you have no life in you. This is how we are called to live as Christians. Pastor Ted gives in a beautiful analogy of the spare tire Jesus. When you get a flat you pull the spare tire out of the trunk and you put them on, but you only put them on for a little while until you get that new tire back on. And then where does the spare tire go? It goes in the back of the trunk and we, and we treat Jesus at times and we treat the Holy Spirit and God at times like that spare tire. And we only pull them out when we need him. This is not what Jesus was talking about when he says you must eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood. If you do not do that, you have no life in you. I believe what Jesus was talking about is this desperation that Moses had for the powerful presence of God in his life on a daily basis. And I believe that Galatians 2.20 should sum up our lives if we truly believe that the same spirit that was in Jesus that rose him from the dead lives in us. Galatians 2.20 says, look, we, me, you, I, Paul, we have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us. And the life which we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. This should mark your life. Galatians 2.20 should be written in your house somewhere, in your Bible, tattooed on your forehead, something. Don't really do that. Um, it's hard to get a job with a tattoo on your forehead. Um, but that ought to mark our lives. That ought to mark our lives. And I just love Moses. He just doesn't take... God's blessing only um, for an answer. He says, no, I, I'm not gonna go unless your presence goes with me. Read verse 12 with me. It says this, and when Moses said to the Lord, uh, and then Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring, this, uh, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name and you have uh, also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you, that I may find grace in your sight and I consider or and consider that this nation is your people. I love Moses because he's bold and he's real. 
Can you imagine confronting God or challenging God or even having a conversation with God like this? Basically, essentially Moses is saying, look, God, you keep telling me that, that there's this promised land. You keep telling me to go. You keep telling me to lead these people into the promised land. But I need to know that you are in this. I need to know without, without any doubt, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you are in this. Not only are you in this, but I need to know what you're up to, God, so that I can, that I can press into that. I think we should be as bold as to approach God that way at times. Not that, we're, that we need, God needs to ha- has to answer to us or he needs to answer to us, but I think we need such a desperation for the power and the presence of God in our lives that we are boldly asking him flat out what we, what we want and allow God to dictate what we, what we need. But I think there's nothing wrong with asking God. You know, the Bible says that he'll give us anything as long as it's in accordance with his will. So we don't, change, we don't pray to change God's will, but rather we pray that God may change our will and conform our will into his. And if we seek God diligently, God will show up in our lives, I believe the same way he showed up in Moses' life. Moses essentially says, look, I need to know that you are in this. And God's response to, to Moses' boldness just blows my mind. In verse 14, it says, and then he, God, He said this, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Just a few verses earlier in chapter, verse three, he said, my presence is not going to go with you. But Moses was persistent. Moses was desperate for the presence of God, that God granted him his wish. He said, look, my presence will go with you. Not only my presence will go with you, but the second part is just the icing on the cake. I will give you rest. I think the result of Moses' boldness is rest. I think the result of boldness in our lives to approach God could result in God granting us his presence and his rest. You look at Hebrews chapter four, verse 16. It says, therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Some of us today, some of you today here, maybe are feeling restless. Maybe you're feeling broken. Maybe you're feeling like you're never gonna get out of this season that God has you in and you desperately need God's presence and his rest. Well, let me encourage you, let me challenge you to boldly approach God and cry out to him and let him answer you. But here's the trick. You can't just cry out to him and then keep talking. You have to sit in his presence and listen and be patient for when he, when he speaks. You remember the prophet Elisha, right? He kills all these prophets of Baal. God does this crazy work and all of a sudden he takes off because this girl Jezebel wants to kill him. And then he's like, God, I need you new. I need you. you know, am I the only prophet left in this world? Am I the only guy serving you? And God's like, no, you're, you're silly to think that you're the only righteous person. But God didn't speak to him in the loud thundering and, and the wind and the lightning storm and all that stuff. What did he speak to him in? A still small voice. And I think in order to hear that still small voice, in order to, to sense the presence of God in our lives, we have to shut up for a minute and recognize that it's not about us. This life isn't about us. It's not about your, your spouse, it's not about your kids. It's about Jesus. And if we are so busy with, with asking and, and, and not listening, then how can God even speak to us if we're not listening to him? 
So if you guys want rest, I think it begins with boldly approaching God and then shutting up and listening to God. Verse 15, Moses is persistent with needing the presence of God evident in his life. This is right out on the heels of God saying, okay, my presence will go with you and I'll give you rest. So then Moses says this, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight except you go with us so we shall be separate, uh, so, so we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. I think Moses knows that he is absolutely done for without the presence of God showing up in his life. Moses wasn't satisfied with the angel going before him. I think that just shows how genuine Moses' love was for God is that he already knew that the the land flowing with milk and honey was gonna be there for him, that God was gonna drive out all the enemies, but Moses wasn't satisfied in knowing that it was all gonna work out in the end. He wanted to know that God was gonna go with him every step of the way. And I think the reason God kind of put this passage on my heart um, really for the last year is because this is the place that I've I've gotten to with, um, with my family and I moving to a foreign land with no house and no job to plant a church. Doesn't that sound exciting? Um, and I know God will be with me, um, but that doesn't mean it's gonna be easy. I'm desperate for the presence of God being evident in my life. And I told, you know, Sarah and I, we, we, we've been talking over this last year and we're like, man, if, I'm not gonna go unless, unless God goes before us. Unless I know that God is in this, there's no way I'm gonna go do something as stupid as, as put a target on my back for the enemy, right? Uh, I'm not gonna do this unless I know God is going with us. And it's incredible the way that God has showed up in this whole church plant story. Um, it started like seven years ago, probably. God has always put church planting in kind of in the forefront of, of our lives. We've, um, as a church, we've, we've planted a few churches here and, and I've always gone and actually helped the families move in. I brought a, a group of our youth group kids to the very first church plant that we did in, in Utah. And we, as, as a youth group, went and helped mow the lawn, helped the family move in. I went, ended up preaching um, that Sunday. Um, and, and so God has always kind of put me in position to kind of help families go and, and plant a church. We did another one to Colorado and actually drove me and David DeLeon, who was here last night, he almost killed us. Um, we were going in the 70. I don't know if you ever drove in the 70, like out to like Colorado and it was like snowing and there was ice everywhere. He was going like 75 miles an hour down this grade like this and he didn't realize it. And I'm, I woke up and I was like, we're gonna die. And um, he's like, oh, what? You know, and he'd like never driven a truck before. And so anyways, we almost died there. Um, so that was good. But, um, but when, when, Ted pulled me aside one, one Sunday as we were tearing down at Linfield, probably like five years ago, seven years ago now. And he's like, hey, Kyle, I just want you to know that I just see God's hand in your life. And I believe that you're going to plant a church one day. And I said, cool, like not gonna happen, you know? I had like garlic and like a cross. And I was like, stay away. Um, you know, but I never actually pressed the Lord on that. You know, people would tell me things and I was like, oh, cool, you know? My wife and I, we both said we would never plant a church and here I am saying this on the Sunday we're leaving, you know, to go plant the church. So don't ever say never. Um, but uh, 
couple years ago, Ted put me over um, just operations to help me kind of think through how churches operate. And uh, he said, I'm doing this, Kyle, because I want to, God's told me to pour into you and disciple you into being prepared to go plant a church. And I said, okay, well, I'll do the job, but I'm not going to plant a church. So you're wasting your time, basically. So, but I said, okay, whatever you want me to do, I'll, I'll do, I'll, I'll oblige. And so I, I did that. And then um, about a year, June of last year, so a year and a half ago, God was like, Kyle, I've always put this on your heart and you've actually never um, prayed about it. You've never sought me on this. It's like, well, because I don't want to, God. Like, I don't want to. I'm afraid of the answer that you're going to give me. And so I began to pray. I didn't even say anything to Sarah because I knew she would be like this, you know, because I was like this. I, st- I was keeping the whole situation at arm's distance. And um, my, my prayer first was, God, take this thought from me. Um, take this whole idea just far, far from me. And God didn't answer that prayer. Um, and then it was, okay, God, if, if you've convinced me that this is what you want me to do, then, then um, convince Sarah this is not what we're supposed to do. And God didn't answer that prayer either, unfortunately. Um, and then my prayer was, okay, God, if this is what you want, then I need you to make it very evident that this is, this is your, your will for our lives. And then God's presence began to come like a, like a cloud of smoke and a pillar of fire like I've never experienced before. Um, and it's been, it's been wild. Uh, I get a text message um, December 6th of 2018, last year. No one knows about this whole church planning thing. I talked to Sarah about it and she was like, uh, yeah, no. And I'm like, okay, thank you, Lord. Okay, maybe you're answering that prayer. And then a month goes by, she commits to prayer. I commit to prayer. And we're both like, dang, like, I think this is what we're supposed to do. So Sarah's like, okay, well, let's go. Let's go take a trip out to Tennessee. And so we, we planned the trip out to Tennessee, um, probably like in December-ish, babe, right? And uh, I get a text from uh, one of my friends here at the church. He's an usher. And he, and he randomly texts me this. I haven't spoken a word about church planning to him. And he says, hey, Pastor Kyle, seems like you're being prepared to plant a church. I'm being told to mention this to you. Maybe you should pray about this. And if you're hearing this from God, start preparing Sorry if this sounds weird, hearing this from me. This has never happened before. And then he ends like, God bless. Really? God bless? Um, And I'm just waiting for Ashton Kutcher to come out somewhere and be like, oh, psych, you're punked. And that never happened, unfortunately. Um, And then one morning, Sarah gets a phone call uh, from some random number in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And she's thinking I'm pranking her. Um, I'm at the gym. She's thinking I'm like calling her on some prank number. And um, so she's like, I come home from the gym. She's like, Kyle, really nice try. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, oh, the number, some number from Murfreesboro, Tennessee. We'd never heard of that city, by the way, um, up until this point. And I'm like, I didn't. So she calls it back and it's like disconnected. It's like Twilight Zone, you know, um, crazy. And then... Um, I get this note in uh, January of this year and we're at our winter camp at uh, On the Edge. And um, this is from a girl who serves here at our church, but I didn't know her. Um, I, I've met her before, but I don't, I don't know who she is. She says, Dear Pastor Kyle, I hope that you are enjoying your weekend here with us at On the Edge. We really loved having RSM here, our, our high school ministry here. I hope this note isn't weird, but I give notes for the things that I can't verbally grasp or communicate. So here it is. I see the Lord working in you. I see him shaking the structure that you hold to, specifically in the ministry that you lead. I feel as if you're being asked, if you, I feel as though you're, uh, you've been asking uh, the Lord to move in your ministry and a tiny part of your heart may have lost hope in your ministry and that if and that is the case, it's okay 
but I'm writing you this note to let you know two things. The Lord has not forgotten you. He has not forsaken you. And he hasn't forgotten the things that he began to stir in your heart to do. And two, be ready because the same shaking that you're experiencing is going to happen in your ministry. The Lord is going to do a good work in your ministry. Take heart. These are the things that the Lord put on my heart for you. And if any of it makes, or if, if any of it has any truth, I hope this has encouraged you. If it doesn't mean anything, then maybe one day it will. I'm praying for you and for your, and for your ministry. Expect him to move. So I'm like, okay, this is just getting irritating now. Um, I'm like, crud, you know? Um, like, relax, God, I, I get it, okay? I get it. Um, and then we plan our trip out to, to, to Tennessee and um, Ted comes to me and I didn't say a word to Ted because I needed to know that God was in this before I was telling a soul. Ted comes to me one morning and I'm sitting in the coffee room doing a little studying for like a Wednesday night and he says, hey, look, God's told me that this is your last year here and you're going to plant a church. And I'm just like falling on the floor like, what in the world, God? Like you can't be, your presence couldn't be more evident that this is what you're doing. So we, we board a plane and we get to Tennessee and we go to the Hertz rental car desk to pick up our car and we meet, meet this tall, older guy named Leon and he asked for my driver's license because I needed to rent the car. And he said, what brings you all here from California? And I said, well, my wife and I are praying about moving here and planting a church and we're seeing if this is what God wants for us. And he looks at me straight in the eyes. Sarah's going to the restroom. He says, we need you. The harvest is plentiful. The labors are few. We need you. We need people who are willing to speak the truth in love. And I'm just like, okay, I'm out of here. Like something weird's gonna happen. Sarah comes out of the bathroom and she lo he looks at her and says, ma'am, uh, we need you. Um, the harvest is plentiful, the labors are few. And so uh, at this point, just super irritated, you know, just like, okay, God, uh, I understand. And then the very last day we're there just seeking the Lord, trying to figure out what city, where. Um, and God gives me this Psalm and it says, Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered, how fleeting my life is. You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you at best. Each of us is but a breath. We are merely moving shadows and all of our busy rushing ends in nothing. We heap up wealth, not knowing who will spend it. And, Lord, or, and so Lord, where do I put my hope? My only hope is in you. And so to say that Sarah and I have felt the, God, the presence of God in this situation is a huge understatement. Um, but it only came, God's presence only came after we diligently and desperately sought him. I think sometimes we want God to show up in our lives, but we want him to do all the work. And we're afraid to put in the work. We're afraid to seek God. We're afraid to humble ourselves and get on our knees and, and say, God, we're not gonna go anywhere unless your presence goes before us. And then Moses, his persistence and his boldness pays off and the Lord meets with him there. In verse 17, says, the Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing which you have spoken for you have sought, found grace in my sight and I know you by name. And he said, please show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, um, but he said uh, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is, my, here is a place by me 
and you shall stand on the rock. And so it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand uh, while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, uh, but my face shall not be seen. And then so we see Moses one last time saying, God, show me your glory. I need to know that you're with me. I need to know that you're gonna protect me. I need to know that your presence is gonna be present in my life. Show me your glory. And God grants him this one last thing and he, he hides him in the cleft of the rock and he covers him with a hand um, as to protect him um, because it says that no man shall see God's full glory and live. And I just love the imagery here. It points to the gospel. We see that God and Jesus called the rock of our salvation. And notice God says, look, I want you to stand in this rock and I'm gonna cover you with my hand, essentially saying, I'm gonna protect you with my hand and the, and the rock of salvation, which is Jesus. I'm gonna hide you in the rock of your salvation, which is Jesus. Just a beautiful picture, I think, of the gospel and, and what we as believers get to enjoy is that safety, that grace, that, that favor, that presence that we find in, in hiding our face in the cleft of the rock, hiding our face in Jesus. And so let me encourage you guys here this morning that if you want the presence of God in your life, it starts with being bold with God, it starts being real with God and diligently seeking God. If you want the power and the presence of God in your life, I believe we need to be boldly pursuing Jesus and not taking no for an answer. And I think the, the, what the presence of God looks like in our lives isn't with signs and wonders like God did in the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus, Jesus said, look, you guys had the prophets and you killed all those guys. I'm sending my Holy Spirit with you. I think the evidence of the Holy Spirit or the evidence of God's presence in your life is the active working of the Holy Spirit in your life. And you look at the fruit of the Spirit, you love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, all of those things being present in your life is the outworking of God's presence in your life. So if you're lacking those things, I encourage you to seek God and desperately on your knees, um, not take no for an answer and ask the Lord to give you those things. Amen.